Go ahead and go to Isaiah 11. <clears throat> there you go, that one right there. Thank you. All right, just uh, hold your place there, and just letting you know what we're doing on Sunday morning, our Sunday morning messages, um, kind of a mini-series, maybe about seven messages total, we'll look at on the topic of five future events you should know. Um, it's about, you know, distinct uh, future prophetic events that a Christian should be mindful of and aware of, and I've made a kind of a, uh, my own little <laughs> graphic here. Uh, things that are from the left to right coming in, our, in, in the path of history for a Christian and some of the things for non-Christians. The first thing is being a rapture. That is where we caught, we're caught up to meet Jesus in the air. And we meet with Him. We stay with Him. There's a, after that point, there's a, on, in heaven, there's a, what's called the judgment seat of Christ. That's where He evaluates each Christian uh, for their service and the nature of it and gives us a reward. And we've been, we preached two messages on that last subject. And when Christians are raptured up out of the air and they're up in heaven, raptured up out of earth and they're up in heaven with the Lord, um, then there's on earth what's called seven-year tribulation. It's also known as the time of Jacob's trouble described in both the Old Testament and New Testament. And it occupies the descriptions of this day of the Lord, this tribulation. The descriptions of that occupy most of Revelation chapter 6 through about 19, chapter 19. A lot of descriptions there. Uh, world events that, are ha that will happen on earth then that will be unlike any other time on earth. A great tribulation. And there will also be at the same time some kind of a lavishing in up to that point uh, a world economic system that people love and are focused on and a world leader that people love and are focused on called the beast or the antichrist. There'll be persecution of Christians at that time. There'll be definitely persecution of Jews. Not very many Jews will survive at the end. And uh, that's called the tribulation. And when the world has had its time to do everything it wanted, to build its uh, Babylon system, its ultimate economic system, its ultimate some sort of religious system, and have its ultimate leader that ends up being a, a disaster and a devil-filled man, when the world gets its way in everything without uh, uh, with it, don't, you know, the man, it'll be a total man-centered world. Finally, Jesus Christ will come back, the reign of Christ. There, I put the crown there down at the bottom. He's coming to earth. And that's what we're going to talk about today, and Lord willing, next week, the, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Christ. Christ will reign forever and ever. But, and He is reigning now, even, in a sense. But there's going to be a distinct 1,000 years of Him reigning on this earth that we're on. It, this earth will get, not, not, we won't get a new earth, but this one will get reset. And the people will be reset. And everything will get reset on this earth. And he will have his administration on the, from, globe, from east to west, north to south, even in the nature of animals for 1,000 years. And that's what we're going to begin to talk about today. Some people get excited. You know, we're going through political season is, I, I get tired of it, you know. And it seems like as the years pass, it's just getting uglier and uglier. But people always have kind of their favorite 
American presidential administrations of the past and, and could talk about that. And, and it's usually a longer time ago than it was, you know. It's like everybody um, um, always looks more nostalgic about the past. But this will be, there, this will be the greatest administration ever. The GOAT administration, okay? Jesus will have. And so let's look in our Bible here. There's so many scriptures. This is a massive subject. They say a picture's worth a thousand words. How do you describe a thousand years then? There's a thousand years I've got to try to describe here, and I'm just going to do it based around some verses in Isaiah and try to make it perceptible and easy to grab. Notice Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10, we'll read it, and then we'll, we'll try to make it, we'll walk through this this morning, this passage, and make it understandable and graspable able to grasp. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones shall lie down together the lion shall eat straw like an ox and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp that's a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on a cockatrice's den that's a that's another poisonous snake they shall not hurt nor destroy in, my, in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Speaking of glorious, I've, I've looked up in history different glorious reigns of kings. All right, now, we really, we talk sarcastically about different presidents. We don't really have a king. It's a president. It's a type of king, but it's not like a really uh, monarchy, full monarchy king. But there was an absolute monarch named Louis XIV of France. Absolute monarch. That means whatever he said absolutely went, his word was law. Okay? It wasn't like this coordination of the three branches like we have, which I think is, is a healthy thing for a uh, sinful society to keep in balance. But this is bad. He, um, in some ways, I mean, it, he, he had a long, long, long reign as a king, Louis XIV, from 1638. Uh, this is when he lived. He lived from 1638 to 1715. He reigned for 72 years and 110 days. Imagine having a term, presidential term like that. You know, 72 years and 110 days, Louis XIV of France. He was called Louis the Great. 
He was called the Sun King, capital S, capital K. That's what they called him, and he called himself. It was the longest, apparently the longest monarch of any sovereign country. I mean, we get tired of our presidents after like six months. You know, we're already, let's talk about the election. It's like, it's three and a half years from now. Well, I guess we can this time. But anyways, you know, but we get like that, don't we? 72 years. So he became the most powerful um, French monarch. He established an absolute monarchy that lasted till the French Revolution, which tried to bring things back into balance. Didn't work that well, but he enforced one religion on, on, he, on, the, on the people of France, the Galician Catholic Church. It was a form of Catholicism. He, he enforced on all the people of France. It drove out many Protestants. Protestants would be people that are more gospel-centered. We would identify with, the, for the most part, them on the gospel. He forced many Protestants to immigrate or convert in his country. And he virtually destroyed the French Protestant community by his tyranny there, religious tyranny. After his long reign, though, France did become a leading European power and regularly asserted its military might and its flexing its muscles there. He turned the Palace of Versailles in very glorious. That's a beautiful palace. I think you can still see it today. I don't know if it's as, as, as much as when he was there. He made his palace extremely glorious. He had an elaborate court ritual that he would do that was created uh, where the king was designed where the king would become the center of attention and he could be observed throughout the day by people. I don't know what that meant going in and out during a certain time and people could have watched him and observe him on this court ritual. With an excellent memory, Louis could then see what this court ritual, he'd look about, he could see who attended him at court and who was absent. And he took note of it. That facilitated the subsequent distribution of favors and positions he'd give out. That was a lot of politicking. Another tool that Louis used to control his nobility, the different classes in his society, was censorship, which often involved him. They found a way to get other people's mail, open their letter, discern the he would want to discern the author's opinion about himself. What are they saying about the government? What are they saying about me? Absolute monarchs often become extremely in, in, uh, insecure. So that's what he do. Moreover, by entertaining and impressing and domesticating with them, uh, them with domesticating them with uh, extravagant luxury and other distractions, Louis not only cultivated the public opinion of himself through the nobility, but he also ensured that the aristocrats remained under his scrutiny. That was supposed to be a length, it was lengthy and a glorious reign. The Bible tells us of, it tells us of the fact that there'll be a kingdom given to Christ and his dominion will be an everlasting dominion and it will not pass away. The Bible tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ that it will be an absolute monarchy. Yep. See, in reality, an absolute monarchy is the best as long as you have a perfect monarch. Again, and for a sinful society, we don't want an absolute monarchy because it puts too much weight on if he becomes you know, egocentric, we're all falling with him. But if you balance it like we have this country, that's the best 
solution in a wicked society, really. But an absolute monarchy is good if it's Jesus, <laughs> and that's what will happen. And uh, it, he, he, will, he is great. The Bible talks about um, the fact that he is the son of righteousness. Louis called himself the son king. Jesus, they said, the son of righteousness shall come with healing in his wings. The son of righteousness, spelt in the Old Testament, capital S, U-N. In Malachi, he's going to rise with healing in his wings. Jesus is going to rise one day upon this world after men have done their best and had all their administrations and they've gone through the tribulation. He's going to rise with healing in his wings and he's going to set the world right. You're like, why, why, are, we, why are we studying this? It's just, you know, isn't there other things to study? Do you realize how much this is sprinkled? This is sprinkled throughout the Bible. It's like veins of gold. If you were to dig in the mountains, you find different veins. There's little veins. It's not all in one place. There's little veins of gold in the, in the mountains of Scripture. Like, oh, that's got to be talking about the millennium. That's just too golden. Animals, like a kid playing with a snake and a lamb light by and a bear over there, that can't, that's too golden. That's right. There's Throughout the Scripture, especially in Isaiah and some of the other Old Testament prophets, a little bit in the New Testament, it talks about this golden age of the millennium. We'll talk about it in this scripture here. Isaiah, right here. So what's this text about we just read? Well, verses 1 through, you can go to the next slide here. Verses 1 through 4 talk about Jesus' first coming. All right? Verses 1 through 4, the first part of verse 4, His first coming was to redeem. Then the rest of the verses... Second, the second part of the passage, his, it, it shouldn't be secret, it's second, his second coming. I'm sorry if my handwriting was, was bad there, uh, Iden. That's my fault. The second coming was to reign. So again, Jesus has already had this first part. We are, these have been fulfilled. To redeem. And the second coming, this has not been fulfilled. Half of, about half of what we read is not fulfilled yet. And that's where he comes to reign. In a sense, there will still be some redeeming, but primarily the idea is reigning. So let's look at some descriptions of this, and then we're going to look at some descriptions of that from the text, okay? We're learning about Jesus' coming to earth, not just the rapture, but coming to earth to reign. Now I want to stop a minute. What's one of the most famous prayers in the Bible? Just, it's okay, just, just, just to talk, huh? Huh? The, Lord, the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Disciples' Prayer. How's that go? My Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy what? What's that? Well, let's look what that is. Thy kingdom come, that's what we're going to look at here. We're praying, do I know what I'm praying for? Thy kingdom come. Jesus taught us to pray with this in mind. Let's talk about when he first came, then we're going to focus on this. Okay, so the Bible text talks this here, tells us, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, a few quick descriptions about his first coming. You see, the first of all, it brings out his lineage. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The translators in our Bible put a capital B for branch, showing that it's speaking about a person. Okay? It, so we are told through Isaiah that Messiah is going to come, and he's not just going to be any clown from any tribe. And he's not going to be from any nation. He's going to be from Israel, not just any nation, not just any tribe in Israel, but Judah, not just Judah, 
not just anywhere in Judah, but a particular family, the family of David, and Jesse is David's dad. He came from the line of Jesse. He came from that specific family, and it had to coincide with what the prophets were saying. So it tells us of Jesus' lineage right there. People were amazed when Jesus showed up on earth in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus healed somebody or cast out a devil or wherever. They're like, is not this the son of David? That was a statement of the Messiah. So Jesus were reminded that he came not, he doesn't just show up from any nation, nor from just any tribe, nor from just any family, but this particular one, and that's how he arrived on earth, a specific nation, a specific tribe, and a specific family, and here he is. So there, Isaiah reminds us of that. He's likened to a, ran, a branch coming out from that root of that family. Verse, th- verse 2, another thing about Jesus' first coming, we see something, just a quick glimpse of his earthly ministry. What does it say rests upon him when he shows up in public here? The Spirit of the Lord, verse 2, shall rest upon him. And the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and the Spirit of counsel and might and the Spirit of, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The Bible tells us next that when Jesus would come, and we, it's already happened, that in his early ministry there'd be evidence of the Spirit of God being on him. The Spirit of God being on him. Sometimes we see people... We observe people in the world and like, yeah, that's just like another guy in the world. That's just like another guy in the world. He's got the spirit of the world. He's got the spirit of the world. He's got the spirit. He's just like any other guy in the world. But then there's people like, wait a minute. That's the spirit of the Lord. And that's how it was with Jesus. When Jesus showed up at his baptism and he came and his first coming in Matthew 3.16, he went to be baptized of John. John the Baptist baptized him. That was kind of the first, kind of the inauguration. Okay? And the Bible says he, that the Spirit of God descending like a dove and was light, and lighting upon him, that is, it set upon him. Whoa! We haven't seen that happen in other John's baptisms. And a voice out of heaven. Yeah, it was unusual. It's different. So there was a distinct identity to Jesus when he came. He came from a distinct family. When he was baptized, it was like, whoa, this doesn't happen every day. Holy Spirit come down upon him and showing up in the, symbolically in the form of a dove and this voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, hear him? That's what happened to Jesus. The Bible says it was evident that he had the power of the Holy Spirit on him. He wasn't just an ordinary man. He looked like an ordinary man, but he didn't behave and his nature was obviously not just like an ordinary man. The Bible says God gave not the Spirit by measure unto him. In other words, he didn't give him a little bit of the Holy Spirit. He gave him much of the Holy Spirit and power. So another description here. Here's Jesus' lineage. Here's a, uh, some of the description of his, of his character and his power and of the Holy Spirit being upon him. Here is another thing is that he had unusually wise, uh, he was unusually wise and discerning. Look what it says there. Verse 2 talks about the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel. And might, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 3. What, these are descriptions of Jesus when he came. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And verse 3 says, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. Neither shall, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. You know what? When Jesus came to earth, he didn't say, those are a bunch of righteous-looking people. They must be righteous. Those are a bunch of religious, important-looking people. They must be religious and important. That guy looks moral. He must be moral. He didn't judge that way. He 
didn't just judge, oh, what it looks like, whatever's on the surface, that must be what it is. No, he's not going to judge after the sight of the eyes. Neither reprove after, just because the, what you hear on the surface, he didn't base everything on that. You know what the Bible says of the Lord Jesus Christ? He, John chapter, the end of John 2, it says, He knew what was in man. When he was dealing with people, he needed not that any should testify of man. Run up to him and say, now this guy, Jesus, is... He needed not that anybody give him the inside or background checks on any man, for he knew what was in man. Nobody needed to testify about man, for he knew all men. He could close his eyes and plug his ears and know. That's Jesus. That's how he was on earth. Remember that? Remember when, I mean, he knew all men. He even tells other people to help. Not that we're God, but he said he would tell people, hey, judge not according to appearance. Judge righteous judgment. Find out what's really right or wrong here in this person. Remember when Jesus was at the, Jesus went to the temple. And you know this story. I think, I don't know if we still have a picture of it back there on the wall, the widow's might. Uh, but Jesus went to the temple and, and the rich, he saw, he was with his disciples. He sees the rich casting money into the, to the offering. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And he sees them doing it, going through. And then he sees, he watches this, this widow woman come in and cast her two mites. I think they may have been like not even a full penny. Just a very small amount. Two mites, they called it. Very small portions of currency into the treasury of the temple. He saw them go by, saw the rich go by and do that. He saw her go by and do that. And he looked over at his disciples. You see this widow right here? She gave more than all those other guys gave. They're like, what? He goes, yeah, she gave all she had. That's her whole living, her retirement 401k is all got liquidated right there. And her savings and anything she hid under the mattress. He didn't say all that, but that was like what it was. He said she gave all that she did. He did say she gave all her living. Now, he's not saying, therefore, you give all your living. He's not saying that. He's saying that he recognizes proportionate sacrifice. He sees it without knowing anything else. He already knew the assets of the rich. And it's not wrong being rich, rich. But it was like they have, they make 100000 and they drop $10 in today. That's basically what he's saying. She makes two mites and she dropped two mites in today. That's what he's saying. I know what happened. See, he knew, he knew people. So it didn't matter if a guy looked rich, religious. He knew if he really was devoted to God or not. It didn't matter if a, if a person seemed moral. He knew if they were moral or not. It didn't matter if a person looked like they loved God. He knew if they loved God or not. Aren't you glad that's how Jesus is? Because sometimes I can't look at all right. But I'm glad he knows me. And then I'm also glad when I do look right and I'm not, he knows me. That's the Jesus that came to earth the first time. That's how it was. And guess what? This Jesus that came to earth, he actually did offer himself. He was going to die. That was going to happen. But he offered himself to this nation that he was in the midst of, and they said, nah, crucify him. So he died on the cross. They crucified that type of person I just described to you. And he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And he said, all right, I'm going to build my church in the meantime, and I'll come back and get her, and then we'll come back and reign. And so next, the scripture goes to this next thing. In fact, look at your Bible. This is, you've got to pay attention to the Bible. Do you realize that we're living right in between, like a colon? What do you call it when it's just two dots? Colon or semicolon? I get them mixed up. Colon, colon okay. 
All right, that's kind of weird. Anyways, 11, chapter 11, verse 4, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek. There's the colon. We live in between that and and. This, that's where we all live. 2,000 years of history. Because what's the next verse say? And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And it's going to go on to describe kind of a different tone here. We're living. He hasn't done that yet. So his second, this is what we're going to talk about, his second coming, that is not the rapture, but when he comes down to earth, he's going to take care of business. So let's get some descriptions of that, and this will be the, kind of the last half of our time. Notice we're going to give you five descriptions up here of his kingdom that's coming. Not that there's only five. There's so many. But I'm going to give you the sampling that, that we have here from Isaiah of Jesus' administration. Number one, when he comes back to establish his administration, he first has to smite and slay. He has to get, get the, the devil's workers out of the way. He's got to get the beast and the antichrist out of the way and the rebellious nations out of the way. Notice what it says there in verse Four, or chapter 11, verse 4, and he, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Hold your place and go to Revelation. The end, last book in the Bible, after uh, in, the, in, in there's a the day, in a future day, there'll be a one world government and there'll be the Antichrist trying to run the show and, and there'll be nations that have, re, uh, not all, but there'll be many nations that have said no to God. And, and when men have had their way and uh, fulfilled their wickedness and it says that finally Jesus is going to show up and the Jews and Christians that'll be saved during the tribulation will be happy because the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19 that one day the heaven, verse 11, the heaven will be opened and behold a white horse, Revelation 19, 11, and he that sat upon him was called faithful. Wasn't called Democrat or Republican. He's called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. I'm glad that he makes war in righteousness. That's good. Not in impulse and not in special interests. In righteousness he judges and makes war. Here's verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written but that no man knew but he himself. And it goes on to describe his coming back. The armies that follow him are clothed in white raiment. That's us. That's the church. So Jesus, when he comes back, I'm giving you five descriptions of this. He's going to have to take control. It'll be the end of a tribulation time when the earth is, is taken. Uh, God has actually sent judgments on the earth to get men to repent. Instead, men blaspheme God. They actually acknowledge there's a God. And they say, God, what are you doing? And they blaspheme God instead of repent. That's in the book of Revelation, Revelation 16, verse 8 to 11. And so finally, by the, by the time that we just read this, I'm trying to help you understand this moment, this time when Jesus actually comes out of heaven. We follow him on white uh, raiment. That the world's armies will be gathered at a place in Israel called Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon. Megiddo's northwest of Jerusalem area, about 200 miles, I believe. And if you're on Megiddo and you look to the west, uh, the Mount I think it was Mount Carmel. You can see the Mediterranean. Then this way you can see this bat. Oh, you're standing on Mount Carmel. You can see the Mediterranean. And then this way you can see uh, the Valley of Megiddo. Wide, large valley that Napoleon said is the greatest 
good spot to have a battlefield, the best battlefield spot in the world. And that's exactly what's going to happen. All these armies are going to be gathered there. Perhaps they're upset at Israel because there'll be a small remnant of Israelis that won't take the mark of the beast. Jesus will be there. They're probably going there and say, who is this person trying to run our life? And there'll be these massive amounts of army that are gathered there. You can read about it in Revelation. And Jesus, you know what he was going to do? All the fighting himself. He's going to destroy them with the, with, the, with the sword of his mouth. And he will, it, will, it says he, he will stain his garments in blood. And, and the blood's going to flow for 200 miles up to the horse's bridle. In that area, it's going to be a bloodbath. But you don't, like, oh, that sounds so, sounds so terrible. These are people who've heard the gospel. These are people who angels preach the gospel. 144,000 unique Jews preach the gospel. And they said, no God, no God, no God. Supernatural judgments were coming on the earth to confirm it. And they still said, no God, no God, no God. And he battles the Antichrist and his armies and the other nations that reject him. And we stay in the white garments. <laughs> he gets his dirty. He can do all the mopping up. Well, actually, he clean, he he. There's the destruction, and then the Bible says the vultures are called in, and they eat up the carcasses. And there's a verse in, in another chapter of the Bible, Old Testament, says it takes seven months for them to bury the bones. But anyways, Jesus comes back and cleans things up, sets things in order for the whole world. And then, number two, the next description of Isaiah is we see that there's righteousness now. Look at chapter 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. And, faith, and faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. You, you know, some people get really, you think about presidents and they're like, I don't know if I can depend on this guy. I don't know if he's trustworthy or I don't know if he has a good nature, if he's righteous. And we're always like, ah, you know. And that's why our founders who had Christian minds tried to well, create a balanced form of government, not have everything banking on the king or entirely on a Senate. Let's create a balance here. And so, but when Jesus comes, you can depend on it. It'll be right what he decides. And it'll be trustworthy what he decides for us. By the way, then this is a major thing. By the way, then it's right. I can trust him now. He's not running the whole world in that sense now, but he, I want him to run my life and I can trust him now. I can trust him to rule in my life. I yield to him. But it'll be done right. Everything will be done right. Look at chapter 16, verse 5. Chapter 16, verse 5. <clears throat> um, it says, in mercy, And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit, up, sit upon the, it in truth and in the tabernacle of David. That's, that is, he'll be in Jerusalem, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. Don't you? In other words, when Jesus says, when Jesus passes a bill, which is all he has to do is vote on it, when he passes it, it goes bang, fast, hasting it. It moves quick. If something's right and it needs to be done, it goes quick. They're not like, oh, it's a government work. You're going to have to wait a while. Not with Jesus. This is fast. The government's going to be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Prince of Peace. You know why there'll be peace in this day, this glorious 1,000 years? Because there's first righteousness, and then there's peace. There's no true peace in your life until you have right until you're right with God. Jesus will establish that for the whole earth. The Prince of Peace will come and establish righteousness. You'll feel the peace. I'm not going to read the scripture, 
In chapter 19 of Isaiah, verses 23 to 25, even Middle East peace will settle. You'll have the Assyrians and Egyptians getting together and being all chummy, and they'll come through Israel and they'll all be happy together. Finally, Middle East peace. Jesus will make that finally happen. Number three, Isaiah tells us about Jesus' kingdom that will be a thoroughly peaceful world. Now, some of you saw this part. There's a lot of verses to describe this. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11. Talks about all these animals getting along. No more dog and cat fights. Oh, man. I kind of like those. No. I mean, I remember we used to have two German shepherds years ago. My parents growing up, we didn't have them very long. I remember we had, like, Max and Millie. They were... They were, they were maybe four months old when we got them, and we probably got rid of them by a year or two. I can't remember, but Max and Millie. Max was um, kind of the gray-looking, typical German shepherds, and then Millie was more black, and Millie was the sister, and like brothers and sisters, they fought. And all I had to do, they got along fine, all I had to do was get one ball and throw it across the backyard. I used to think, oh, this is cool. i got dogs. They're going to fetch a ball for me. i throw the ball. And they would hardly get to the ball. They'd be running toward the ball, and they're like, and they'd start fighting with each other. And then they're like, and then maybe one would get the ball. And I'm like, man, this is no fun. They're always fighting, Max and Billy, you know, animals fighting. You know, um, what does the Bible say here? Jesus is going to have his way in such a way that even the animals are going to just, everybody just get along. Look at the words here. Verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. If you take care of sheep, you never would allow that. Wolves stay far away from lambs. You can't trust them. Carnivorous. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. That is a baby goat. Are you kidding me? Leopard would love to have some, you know, some goat, some young goat there. The calf, verse 6, and the young lion, and the fatling together, carnivorous, carnivorous animals and what? Herbivores. And the ones that are very peaceful and slow moving, laying down together. And there's no bars between them like at a zoo. The cow, look at verse 7, uh, the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. Can you imagine that little calf and a little baby, a little baby bear? You know, I, I mean, you know, you watch, sometimes kids say, oh, let's get a baby lion or let's get a baby bear. No, let's not. Just let, let's let the zookeepers do that and we'll watch them, you know. It's because the nature is going to come out eventually, right? Somebody got a pet raccoon one time, you know, and, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, man. and then the raccoon just tore up this lady's face. It's nature. You know, you get some other kind of pet, you know, people get these pythons. And I know you can train them to a certain extent, but you just, you can never trust their nature. Jesus is going to subdue that. Now, basically, most, I would say most of the sin curse will be undone. Not all of it. We'll get to that probably in another message. But in this case, the animal venom is gone. Ferocity is gone. No carnivorous animals. Look at what else it says about snakes. I don't know. I might make an exception for this one. I don't know. Verse 8, the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, the cobra. Now, I might let kids, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I still want to, although I'll have a perfect body, so I guess that won't matter. But that's going to be weird, man. The little baby that's still breastfeeding, shall is going to, oh, 
honey, by the way, real quick, there's going to be some families that are reproducing in the millennium. It's not going to be us as Christians. We're going to be a new glorified bodies. We're going to be like the angels of God. We didn't even marry nor given in marriage in that resurrection. But there'll be people who survive at the end of the tribulation who are believers who go right from that terrible tribulation right into the golden age of the millennium. And the Lord allows a population to grow for a thousand years. So there's little children, there's families, etc. There's things like that. Um, uh, and so what does this happen? What? A little kid? Imagine the parents, oh, honey, just go let them play with the, the cobra. Not the car, I mean the, the kid, you know, or the, the, little, the little snake. Uh, and then it says, the weaned child shall put his hand on a cockatrice's den. That's a very poisonous act. Oh, Connie, go ahead, stick your hand in the, stick your hand in the snake hole, see if you can have a little snakey. And it'll happen. I'm not joking, You're like, this is a funny movie. No, this is real. This is real. Now stick his hand, yeah, go pull out snakey and play with snakey. Come around, let him wrap around your neck. Couple times, that's gonna happen. You're like that's outrageous. It's it's not if Jesus is here. That makes perfect sense. He can subdue all the curse and flip it back over, back to where it should be, like in Eden. That's what he does. A thoroughly peaceful world. Number four, family life will somehow be continued. We I just described that. We just described some babies here that'll be there. There's other scriptures we could show you, but it's saying there's going to be some families. It won't be us. If you're saved and you're Christian, you get raptured, you're coming back in a new body, and you're not getting married again. I mean, maybe you want to chase your wife around, but not much is going to happen after that. You know, it's, so there'll be, we'll be focused on serving the Lord like the angels of God. What are they? Servants dispatched to do His will. That's what we'll be in the kingdom. But there'll be other people that will be uh, people in, the, in that, uh, that can have families. So, by, and quickly, Isaiah 65 verse 20 talks about the fact there'll be some longevity of life. They still die. There'll still be the need for people to trust Jesus. But they'll be, live a long time. It says if a man lives 100 years and dies, he'll be looked at as a baby. That's what it says in Isaiah 65 verse 20. So this is descriptions of Jesus' kingdom, these, the subduing, the carnivorous nature and animals and righteousness and peace and, and family, some family life continued and longevity. And then the last description is the whole world will be able to know the Lord. Look at chapter 11, verse 9 and 10. It says there, in that day there shall be, I'm sorry, verse, verse, uh, verse 9, 11, 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the, my holy mountain for the earth shall be full full of the knowledge of the Lord, wow, full, as the waters cover the sea, saturated with God, knowing God. I know God. doesn't say everybody, right. at the end of the thousand years, not everybody's going to be Christians, because we're going to talk about that next time. But everybody will know the Lord, full, saturated. They'll be able to know Him. In fact, it talks about the to Him shall the Gentiles seek, it says in verse 10. In other words, if you're living on this side, I don't know how the continents are going to change or anything, but say we're on this side of the hemisphere, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and we're, you know, we already know him, but if we're over a region here, maybe, you know, maybe Brother Matt gets the, the Gilbert region to, to oversee by the Lord, and, and, um, and there's people that need to know the Lord. They need to be taught. And again, we could run to a bunch of scriptures to try to sort this out, sort this out but it'll be something like this. If somebody says, I don't know, I heard about this, and 
And, and, I, and I heard about Jesus, and, and uh, yeah, and, 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 and it's nice having these uh, animals that get along. They didn't know anything else. But Matt could say, you can go see him. You could actually go see Jesus for yourself. And the people will know about him and see evidence of him. But you could actually even go see him. And by the way, still people, but Satan, when he released on earth, at the end of the thousand years, will turn people. But we'll talk about that next time. So let's just stop on this. Let's stop right there and then ask, make a few practical statements here. So, all right, cool, Pastor. Great kingdom's coming. So what does that mean to me right now? What does that mean to me right now? If Jesus is going to come back, not just to rapture me, but actually come back on earth and I'm going to be with him, he's going to have his kingdom. What does that mean to me right now? Well, it means that I should do what he said in that prayer. I should, I should pray, God, thy kingdom come. Lord, may you come back. You know, he wants us to ask him to come back. Thy kingdom come. Now, I know right now it's a spiritual kingdom. It's spiritual, but it's not full in its fullness. I'm supposed to pray that famous prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And I'm excited if my guy wins the presidency. I'm excited if our country does well. But thy kingdom come. We're supposed to pray that, number one. Number two, we should seek it. Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I want, I, look, I, I don't have an interest in the United States running the whole world. I don't really seek that, especially right now. But I seek Jesus running the whole world. And until then, I want him to run my whole world. So that's number three, is that he needs to be the king on my heart. He needs to reign in my heart. It's like we sometimes get very, you know, if there was only prayer and Bible reading in schools again, if only to talk about God in the public schools, you know, why don't God be king on your heart and the prayer and Bible reading in your own house, in your own life? And let him be king right here in this realm that you can make this. It's easy to criticize all of our political failures. That's easy. Deal with yourself. This is a kingdom. Let him run this one. Okay? In the meantime. And so he needs to be king on my heart. Number four, and I'll just stop here. As many things we could say is that we need to serve him faithfully and thoughtfully now in light of the next life. This is a testing ground right now. Your life right now is a testing ground. After you're saved, when you become a Christian, what, he, what you're doing and how you're serving becomes a testing ground for what he assigns you to do in this millennial age. This is what the Bible teaches. My, um, many parables Jesus taught. He taught a parable you know, a couple times about, you know, uh, this guy, he has a great king, he, this king, and he has a he has a uh, a kingdom, and he and he he has a bunch of goods, and he called over three of his servants, and he delivered unto them his goods, and to one he gave five talents. Here, I got five talents. That is five portions of his assets. There, this is say five thousand dollars. To one he gave the five talents, five thousand. The other he gave two talents, and the other he gave one, and he gave each of those those amounts because he knows each of their several ability. He knows that guy can handle five, that guy can handle two, that guy can handle one. No offense to any of them. He's like, you take care of this while I go, because I'm going, I'm going to come back. You take care of these two, you take care of this one. And, and he left and went into his far country and left them to, to manage those assets. And the guy with five says, you know, I'm going to invest this. this I, I'm not just going to sit here or ignore it. And he went and traded and risked with effort. 
In Matthew 25, it says, he risked that and he doubled it. Whoa, I got five more. So I got 10 now, 10,000. And so he was waiting for his master to come back. So look what I did. The guy with two, same thing. He, he went and risked his, his investment and doubled it, had two. And then the guy with one's like, hey, I only got one. It wasn't that he had no ability. It wasn't that he had a brain. His master knew he had enough of a brain to invest a thousand and do something with it, or at least stick it in a bank and get interest. Yeah. That's what the master ended up saying. And so the guy's like, eh, eh, it's just, eh, he just buried it, and like, you know, he'll get it. And so the master comes back. He's like, hey, guys, he gathered them and reckoned with them. That's a picture of us. We're going to reckon with Jesus at the judgment seat. He reckoned. That means let's count this now. He reckons with them. All right, how'd you do? Whoa, you doubled it? Good job. Well done now, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. Now, over these things, I'm going to make you rule over many things. That's uh, the Christian who's diligent with what he has now. That God's given him now, you're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ, and he's going to say, like, all right, based on what you did now in this life, I'm going to make you ruler over here, part of Gilbert if you want. You know, it won't smell like cow manure anywhere. It'll be a new world, you know. And so, and then the guy said the other one, did, oh, you doubled that. Good job. They're all done now. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. And the one guy's like, ah, Lord, I know you're hard, man, and you just reap where you don't sow and gather where you haven't reaped. And I just buried. He goes, you wicked servant, you know, take that and give it to this other guy. And so the idea is that if I only have a little bit of opportunity, if I only have a little bit of skill in my life, a little bit of talent, doesn't matter. If it's two, if it's two talents, so to speak, do something with it because you're going to stand one day before Jesus as a Christian, and he's going to see what you did and be like, all right, you know what? Let's give you this over here. And so we talk about his kingdom. We talk about Jesus coming back one day. We are admonished in the Bible to think about how we're living right now. Don't just think, you know, I'm just going to kick back and do what I want and just please me. Think of what can you do for Jesus? What, what assets is it that he has in your? What mental skill do you have? What spiritual gift do you have? What opportunities do you have that maybe I don't have? That's not an accident. You're going to give an account to God one day. This is no joke. Now, I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but you are going to live a thousand years somewhere else, and it's going to look like how you thought about this life. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. And so we talk about this kingdom. That I should think, what am I doing? I want to seek first the kingdom of God. I want to pray thy kingdom come. I want to... I want to um, make the most of my days, make the most of my opportunities for Jesus because I'm going to reckon with him one day. When, when uh, Louis XIV died after 72 years and 110 days, they had a funeral for him. Glorious, he wanted it to be glorious. So it was all coordinated to be a glorious place. In a glorious moment. It was at some big old cathedral. I don't know which one. In France. By the way, he made the famous statement when they said, um, you know, what is, we need to go along with the state. And he says, I am the state. <laughs> he said, basically, I am the government. Very, very egocentric. But finally, in 1715, he died after 72 years of reigning. His glorious funeral was arranged uh, in a kind of a dramatic way. There was a man named Jean-Baptiste Mas Massillon. I don't, 
He's a, a French Catholic bishop, Jean-Baptiste Massillon, who officiated his funeral. He was apparently a famous bishop and preacher of that day. And so what they said was, you know, hundreds or maybe probably thousands of people around, there were thousands I read now, thousands of people around observing this um, funeral for Louis. As his body lay in state in a golden coffin, the orders were given, so there's a coffin, orders were given that the cathedral should be very, very dimly lit all around. So that everything's bare, hardly lit. But up front, there's one candle, distinctly lit candle, to dramatize his greatness by his coffin. <clears throat> then Bishop Massillon began to speak, slowly reaching down to the candle by his, by his coffin, slowly reached down to the candle. He snuffed out the candle, probably with a snuffer, snuffed out the candle, and in, in France he said, Du seul es grand. He says, only God is great, and snuffed that candle out. And that's what we need to remember is like, don't get too worked up <laughs> about great this, great that, great player, great politician, great king, great, yeah, only God is great. And he's going to come back. But what he needs to be, make sure today, he needs to make sure he's your savior. He's your personal savior. That's when you humble yourself and bow and confess, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me and you rose from the dead. Come into my life and be my savior so my soul is saved and I can be with you.